You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. So just before we started recording, uh, you mentioned, Eric, that you had done fishing in the East Kootenays, mm. where we're both both from. Yes. Um, Curtis yes. is in Fernie, so the rivers that you mentioned, the Wigwam, uh, the Elk, those are his uh, home waters. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, when was the last time you were right on. fishing here? Uh, probably, well, we, as a family, we rented a cabin uh, in the West Kootenai, I guess technically on the west arm of Kootenai Lake at Proctor. But we used to take the road over to the upper St. Mary and fish all down there right to the very bottom. I had the best chocolate cake I've ever had in my entire oh, the, life in Kimberley. The Great Columbia. Creek Pass. Yeah, the Great okay. Creek Pass, yeah, scary road, but uh, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was sort of in the... I guess the last time was probably the mid two thousand, maybe two thousand eight, two thousand nine, something like that. Mm. Uh, but we went to the wig, you know, went to the wigwam a couple of times, uh, and Skookumchuck, of course, and uh, you know, lots of. I had a couple of friends who live in Nelson, and they 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 guided me one day on the wigwam, which was really special, huge cutthroat, oh, cool. and bull trade, uh, yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's a really beautiful, cool fishery. Beautiful place to fish. Yeah, sure, it certainly mm-hmm. is. It's so picturesque down on the wigwam. You know, you get the oh, big yeah. Mount Broadwood, which is the um, conservancy belonging to the Nature Conservancy of Canada, and just and you know, even just the the river itself. Like the Curtis can do the same thing. Like you can just see photos, other people's photos, you know, and stuff, and you're just like, that's the wigwam. Yep. And yep. it's got some very, for me, it's got some very characteristic. Um, rock colors in there, yes. and they've got the red yep. um, argillite. I, I probably Hem- is. hematite and, is the and, red and, stuff. And, oh, hematite. Yeah. That's oh, right. Oh, wow. That's right. Um, and yeah, I, uh, and it, and it's just like there's nowhere else in the East Kootenay that yeah. I know of that I can I can pick out those red rocks. <laughs> yeah, I've got a one of my favorite pictures. You... Um, it wasn't. I didn't catch a cutthroat that was quite as big as this one, but this this thing was well over fifty centimeters. And it's you know lying in water, and the water's so clear it looks like it's out of the water, and it's against this kaleidoscope of colors of these rocks. I was wondering if you're going to mention the rocks because it was it was caught by uh, my friend John Hagen, uh, who was one of the guys guiding me. He lived with James Baxter, and the, the colors of the rocks. Anybody who sees that says, "Oh, that's the wigwam. That's the wiggy. It's just unbelievable colors." Yeah. So I I, I totally get it. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, sort of pre-pandemic, Curtis was a full-time fly fishing guide, so oh. they had rod days on the wigwam and uh, elk. The bull, you had mentioned the Bull River, yep. doing some yep. fishing there, so Curtis is headed mm-hmm. out there this weekend. Oh, nice, nice. Do some fishing on the bull. And, well, I remember... Yeah, I well, if... that's that's cool. Did did you... Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, do you ever remember a guy named Peter Go Corbett? Ahead. Fellow named Peter Corbett. He, we did some anyway. We did some sampling. No, we did a lot of DNA work on the in the Kootenays uh, in the yeah in the Kootenays. And he took me. He met us at downstream somewhere on the Saint Mary. And it was the most exhausting day of fishing in my life because we were trying to sample as many cutthroats as we could to take <laughs> fin clips. And it was like a forced march. The, the march of, to Bataan had nothing on this. This forced march upstream all day, catching these fish. And you know, once you caught. A couple of fish out of a pool, we were on to the next one. But, you know, like, where's the relaxation here? It was the hardest field work I've ever done, but it was – those those people were amazing how quickly they could catch fish. 
Holy. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. F- a fond memory. I remember fishing on the St. Mary's as a kid because the, uh, the St. Mary's Valley was kind of like my family's um, home valley for hunting, and my father had a trap line up the back of Dewar Creek. Okay. And yeah. so some of my earliest rem- memories of fishing there going, you know, walking down into the pools and just a, a bait hook with a little um, egg on it was all we ever used. And yeah. just, uh, yeah, like lots of, lots of beautiful cutthroat and stuff, but brushy. Like oh, that's wow. a yeah. thick, brushy, <laughs> aldery, grown in creek, the St. Yeah. Mary's and Dewar Creek. <laughs> wow. Uh, Right on. Well, if you ever get back into the Kootenays and want to go fishing, you'll have to connect up with Curtis there. He's Absolutely. Love to access to, love to rafts and drift boats and stuff, oh, which is man. a cool way man. to get oh, avoid sure. all that brush along the yeah. river. <laughs> I've never had the pleasure of being in a drift. Well, I guess once. Uh, and not, not with a professional guide, though, that's for sure. Uh, well, it's isn't the big thing, Curtis, you said with the boats and clients and fishing it's like it it half the skill and the expertise is the ability to row yeah yeah rowing is a is a big part of having a good day if if you have someone who's not a good rower and they're crowding the water you want to be fishing or they're too far away it's kind of all all uh all in how you row the boat down the river is is a can dictate how (laughs) how successful or unsuccessful your day can be. So, well, I, I, I can see that for sure. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. No, that's kind of cool. You guys got a bit of a common, common yeah. ground there oh, in, yeah. um, in, oh, in, in fishing. So it's kind of neat when, you know, the same, some of the same places. Mm-hmm. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, the amazing thing is, you know, I, well, I've read many fond memories of the Kootenays, but you know, we spend a lot of time in the caribou, south caribou and it's it's fantastic too it's just this province just has so much fishing mm. and so much varied oh, terrain yeah. for hunting it's we're just so blessed but anyway oh absolutely no uh and looking forward to uh this conversation with you and diving into one particular fish and the conservation concerns around it so hey everybody it's mark hall your host and it's curtis all the co-host the hunter conservationist podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. Again, we just want to thank them. Like I said on our September 1st episode, they've renewed for a, another year of being our title sponsor, so we want to give them another shout-out for doing that. They're big supporters of us, big supporters of conservation in general, uh, specifically Ducks Unlimited. I know the, uh, the owner likes to dabble around in the uh, no pun intended for ducks but dabble around in the <laughs> ducks unlimited world and yeah i know uh, i drove past the new toyota building a couple weekends ago and it's coming along nice so that's something folks can look forward to seeing the brand new alpine toyota dealership rolling up there so as always thank you to alpine toyota for continuing to support us and conservation and bringing you guys these really cool chats and dialogues and conversations we have with very cool people like the one we have on today. Absolutely. Yep. Thank you, Alpine. Um, so welcome, Eric. Glad you could be on the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Yeah. So 
So today, folks, we got uh, Dr. Eric Taylor, um, also goes by Rick. I was trying to get the nuance of that just before <laughs> the sh- part of the show. So Eric is formal and, and uh, Rick is uh, informal and that's a lot easier than me because I have three first names and Mark is my third one. So I think you're uh, you're a little more a little more simple than me. So um, so Eric, you are a uh, professor and researcher at the University of British Columbia in the Department of Zoology. Is that still still your current standing? Uh, that is correct. Also a member of the Biodiversity Research right Center. But yes, that's correct in Vancouver. Yep. Okay. Yeah, cool. Um, so your your specialty, your focus area is is fish ecology, biology. That just big picture. That's kind of. Yep. Yep. Um, I'm you know, I'm increasingly interested in uh, genomics, uh, in particular in the use of genomics mm. in uh, aiding people on the ground who have to make conservation decisions uh, for fishes. So. Um, uh, oh, do cool. a lot of that sort of stuff. That cool. a uh, lot, lot of applied work as well, which I really enjoy. Yeah, right on. And you're also the author of a book, uh, "River Runs Through Us: A Natural and Human History of the Great Rivers of North America." That's correct. Thank That's you for mentioning cool. that. I wasn't expecting that, but yes, yes, it came out in October, twenty-one. <laughs> is the is the Fraser River that we're about to talk about one of the great rivers of North America? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Oh, right on, right on. I, uh, I, I really want to get the book when I when I saw that now. So that's cool. What are all the great the great rivers? Oh yeah. So, <laughs> well, I'm sure. As wow. you know, there's always one that someone said, "Why did you include this river?" And I say, "Well, Why I can't you... include all great ones. I just it's sort of a never sampling." Of... Yeah, <laughs> never heard of it before. Yeah. They're just they're if they're they're great to me. They went in the book. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh that's cool. Now, you are also the past chair uh, of the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada from 2015 to 2018. Uh, that, that, actually, it's 2014 to 2018, but yes, that's correct. Oh, 2014. Okay, yeah, four cool. Years. So for four years as uh, the chair. So this is, um, yeah, maybe you can, you know, when we get into it a little bit, um, maybe explain a little bit of role about um, COSEWIC. That's sure. the acronym for for the for the committee, and, and and we'll get into a little bit specifically with uh, with the steelhead. So, okay. um, yeah. So the topic we really want to dig into and learn from you about is the whole conservation issue with the Interior Fraser River steelhead populations. And, uh, you know, we've been, this is a story we've been following for a few years now. Uh, the conservation concerns, you know, we're just, they've been in the critical zone for a, a long time, you know, and now we're down to seeing, you know, last year they were reporting, I think it was like 19 pairs, spawning pairs, or 19 fish. 19 <laughs> fish, Spawning actually. adults, 19 fish. Yeah. Um, that returned in the Chilcotin uh, run. So I, I just, yeah, that's uh, that's why we got you on. We want to want to learn more about this whole whole issue. So maybe to kick us off, kind of like set the stage a little bit. Maybe just tell us a little bit about this fish, the steelhead. Like sure. we know it's a it's a sea run 
cutthroat or rainbow? Kurt? Rainbow, rainbow. <laughs> yes, sir, rainbow. Yeah. Rainbow. Okay. okay. <laughs> Definitely. Also, listen. No, there's a, there's, a, there's a sea run cutthroat. There are sea run cutthroat, yeah, but they ain't steelhead. Rainbow, so. Yeah. Yes. No. Yeah. It's not the steelhead. So, um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about the biology of the steelhead and sure. and kind of maybe a little bit what makes sure. them sensitive as a management species and and what differentiates them from salmon. Right. Uh, well, um, like, like all our Pacific salmon and trout, they're magnificent animals. Um, the steelhead trout, as you mentioned, is, is a seagoing variety of uh, rainbow trout. It's found all the way from Kamchatka, uh, rivers of uh, Kamchatka and Russia, down to uh, sort of um, uh, southern California. Um, they're magnificent oh, wow. uh, fighting fish. They can grow to exceptionally large size, like close to 40 pounds. Um, and they're, so they're revered by anglers basically around the world, particularly the Thompson River fish that, uh, you know, could get to, I think the average is 15 pounds, but they certainly can get over 30 pounds. Uh, people traveled from all over the world to, to uh, fish the Thompson River. It was sort of a classic time period to fish it uh, in the autumn time in, in October, late September and October in um, uh, the Thompson River drainage. Uh, so they're just a magnificent fish. And of course, there's the summer run and winter run that are defined based on what time they come back. Uh, majority of the time, they come back to begin their freshwater migration. They all spawn in the springtime, um, but the winter run and, and summer run refer to their, their uh, spawning run timing, which is quite interesting. You know, there used to be a magnificent run in the right in right in Vancouver runs the Seymour River and the Capilano River, and there's some amazing old archival photographs of before they put the Capilano Dam in this gorgeous river valley where people like Haig Brown and, and uh, Tommy Brayshaw caught these magnificent mm. fish within the uh, site of the bank towers of, of Vancouver. So they're, they're just a, a, a heavily revered angling fish uh, throughout the Pacific Basin, rivaling certainly the, the Atlantic salmon. They don't quite have the, mm-hmm. the sort of lineage, <clears throat> if you will, or the, the angling, I risk I'll say it, of snobbery of, say, of Atlantic salmon, but they're, <laughs> uh, pound for pound or kilogram for kilogram, they're just as game and uh, and pretty spectacular. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, you mentioned now they. Are, sorry, what makes them vulnerable? Yeah, okay, I no, mean, go ahead. Sorry. Go yeah, I just forgot that. Um, I mean, like, you know, they spend two to three years in fresh water before they migrate to the sea. So anytime you're in fresh water for that long, you're at the mercy of the landscape that surrounds the rivers. And the, the habitat changes, and the pollution and siltation that occurs uh, in those rivers. So they're they're definitely vulnerable at that stage. Um, they're vulnerable, as we'll talk probably a little bit about later, during the um, homeward migration of adults. Again, to changing conditions, say in the Lower Fraser River, and in particular to interception by uh, fisheries. It's not a commercial fish. People will see steelhead salmon in restaurants and things, but those are almost surely uh, farmed fish from somewhere on the Seashell Peninsula, I think, where they farm uh, steelhead in, in no, fresh water. Just, but they're not commercially. Yeah. They're not commercially. Just how fish they get anywhere. labeled. Yeah, that, they're just mis- mislabeled. Huh. Um, but so they're not a commercial fish, but they're 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 subject to bycatch uh, in various areas for net fisheries for Pacific salmon, which is a big big problem. So when they stay in the fresh waters, like for two to three years, that's that's the juvenile fish. 
you're talking about, right? Yeah, okay. Th that's correct. So then all the all the perils of being a little fish in a small stream uh, for yes. two or three years can, can catch up to them. Okay, gotcha. That's right. The the uh, this is just kind of a side story, a little rabbit hole. When 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 you're talking about how they get labeled in the restaurants and the commercial world is is this the steelhead salmon. Uh, I was in Las Vegas on a business crazy. trip one time, and and uh, they uh, where where was the it was the restaurant that's um uh, it, it's in the building that looks like the Eiffel Tower. Oh, yeah. Eiffel Tower above the Hard Rock. Anyways, can't remember. It was a long time ago. But they had uh, this menu item, and it was called White Canadian Pheasant. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyways, when the, when, the, when the server the server came back, I, I was like, can you tell me a little bit about this White Canadian Pheasant? <laughs> and I didn't say I was from Canada. And I got this beautiful explanation of these pheasants and they're canadian and they're white and stuff and i was kind of like mm -hmm, oh really <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Like, so everything's white up there right to yeah. match, match our <laughs> match our houses that we live in that's yeah like, yeah yeah no but, kidding uh, so well, i don't know why they sorry, i mean I, <laughs> sorry rabbit hole I, i'm convinced they call it steelhead salmon because steelhead trout they think will confuse people uh, it's if it, it's like as if a trout isn't <laughs> sophisticated enough it has to be a, a, a salmon even though there's no such thing as a steelhead salmon it's it's crazy but oh man poor poor fish they can't even call it so by its proper name you, you like, give me a break <laughs> yeah that that certainly doesn't help when you're trying to get public support for sure yeah. so um tell us a little bit about the 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 fraser river steelhead in in particular um Okay. Like the runs, you know, there are genetic groups of them that are different, a little bit of the history. Um, and, and you'd already mentioned like that the, the Thompson River further inland, like when the, when the steelhead got up there, it was, it was a world-renowned destination place for, for, for that fishery. And now there's like really nothing left of that. But yeah, tell us really a little bit left. about the Fraser, the Fraser runs. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, the, well, there's there's uh, runs that uh, go into say that you know lower Fraser that go into the Chilliwack, uh, the Chehalis, I think as well, um, and the ones we're talking about today are collectively sort of known as the Interior Fraser Steelhead, and um, they get as far up as uh, the Quinell River, but as far as I know, the uh, one of the tributaries in the Quinell River, um, the spawning there is sort of episodic or, or is, is, is not really considered to be consistent or they don't have consistent data on it. So you don't really, it's not really factored into into the discussion so far. But it's basically the Chilcotin River is kind of the northern limit in, in the main stem tributary of the main stem Fraser uh, of these interior Fraser steelhead. And of course, so there's a, a complex there that mostly spawn in the Chilco River. And then there's a complex within the Thompson River and they don't get above, for whatever reason, they don't seem to get above uh, Kamloops Lake. I don't know why, so mm. I think there's episodically they've been reported in the North Thompson but basically they're um, uh, the outlet of uh, Kamloops Lake and downstream in the uh, main stem Thompson to, to where it hits Lytton. And that is really is a complex of four spawning, four main spawning streams, the nickel of the Bonaparte uh, the Dead Man, and uh, one which I'm forgetting. Uh, oh, the Coldwater River, I think. 
uh, and Spias Creek, etc. So okay. when they say there's 107 fish coming back to the Thompson, uh, you know, that's spread across four different streams. So within any one of those streams, there's like 20 fish or 25 fish, which is incredibly low. Oh, my goodness. Uh, now, anyway, whereas they that complex of those four spawning streams used to be in the several thousands in, in the mid-1980s. Um, and uh, there's also another set of populations in, like, the Stein River, the Nahatlich River, which are also part of the Fraser Interior Fraser River complex. Um, but, again, they're not as well studied. There's not as much known about them. So they're, they're not... They are of conservation concern in the general sense, but they're not the focus of this uh, heightened awareness and this this controversy that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later. The, the, the focus of yeah. the assessment uh, by Kosiewicz, um was the Chilcotin and Thompson River steelhead trout that are genetically distinct from all the other ones, from various assays. I'm not going to bore your listeners with, but just take my word for it. They're genetically different. They have different life history. They have different migration timing, which makes them different than all the other ones. Um, they have different ages at maturity, different smolt ages, which all seem to be adaptations to living in those particular streams, either the Chilcotin, Chilco area, or uh, uh, the Thompson. The Chilco, of course, is a longer migration. It's got an extra barrier they've got to get through, so the fish tend to be a little older. They're mostly six-year-olds. In the Thompson, they're mostly five-year-olds. Um, let's see, uh, right, so, uh, so there, there's really good evidence that they're distinct from all the other steelhead, even in the interior Fraser River, and certainly from, uh, we've known since the 70s, they're distinct from, um, steelhead in the lower Fraser River, and of course they're distinct from steelhead on Vancouver Island, which have, have their own troubles. Um, and I guess I'll just finish off, uh, with saying that the you know, we can talk about the Kosiwik process if you'd like, but we were stimulated by a letter from an angler, Leonard Pagan. I think he was from Spence's Bridge, who said, why aren't you people looking at the steelhead trout in the Thompson River? The numbers have plummeted, and we haven't been able to fish them for many years. So that got uh, the whole Kosiwik uh, conservation assessment process kick-started. I'll stop there. And when, when was that? Uh, that was in uh, 2017, I believe. So the Kosiwik okay. is this committee of people who are um, elected to positions. They're appointed by the government, but they're not beholden to the government. They're an independent panel of academics, consultants, uh, industry representatives, um, and some government biologists. But when, when they when they come to the Kosiwik table, they take their government hat off, and they're just there as a biologist. Um, there's a prior to I mean, we can't do all in any one year. You can't assess all 213 or whatever it is, close to that, uh, freshwater fish species in Canada, what their conservation risk is. You have to have a priority list. So steelhead were on the list to be looked at. They just weren't at the highest priority because we didn't have certain information that came to us from this uh, concerned angler of the Kamloops fly fishers, I believe. Uh, so they got us thinking about it and uh, initiated this assessment process because the numbers had dropped so greatly. Well, that's that, yeah, that's interesting. Kind of that the um, yeah, sort of the that that red flag was raised by yep. by by folks you know on on the ground. So it was kind of a 
the, our last episode with, with uh, Jen Thornhill Ferma was, was kind of talking about like the same thing with the cod fishery collapse um, and kind of like these on the ground voices and stuff like that. And, and um, you know, in some cases not being listened to. And uh, so it was kind of, kind of an interesting theme there of where, you know, where these, these um, initial alarms were coming from. So, um, so I'm just wondering, would it, would it be good to talk about the Kosiwik process when they stepped in to look at, at the fish or more specifically about like what happened to the steelhead? Um, well, like part when, of the, you know, what were causes of decline? Like where yeah. chicken and egg thing here, which, which, gotcha. where would you like to start? Well, we might as well start with the Kosiwik process because part of that process is actually looking at why the fish, what is the state of the fish and why have they declined? That's part of the process. So we can do it all at once, I think. Okay. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Fill um, us in. Sure. So yeah, just let me loose. I can talk forever. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's a time limit to this. Yeah. So, so uh, okay. yeah, start, start with the, with the Kosiwik assessment and then. Yeah, walk us walk us through what okay. what was revealed about those so, interior runs. Sure. So, uh, just a, a bit of history. Kosiwik, which again stands for the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada, uh, began in 1977. It did its first assessments in 1978, uh, and these were well, they still are strictly advisory, but they had no legal um, sort of no legal context. Now, when the Species at Risk Act which I'll probably call Sarah from now on, came in in 2003, the federal legislation, Kosiwik was mandated as the official assessor of uh, plants and animals at risk of extinction from Canada. So that now it has legal, it's within a legal umbrella, Sarah. Mm. It's a committee of 60 or so people uh, who meet twice a year. Uh, there, People are... Um, and there's different species specialist groups. So there's a fish, a freshwater fish group, a marine fish group, a vascular plants group, a marine mammals group, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, there's a certain budget and a certain time sort of available to assess a certain number of species every year. You say, well, what do you mean by assess species? Well, we use internationally recognized criteria, numerical criteria, or how much area a species occupies, to classify them as either extirpated, uh, which means basically gone from, from Canada, uh, endangered, threatened, or special concern. And this is where Sarah legal prohibitions come in for threatened, endangered, or extirpated, where you can't kill or harass a fish, that sort of thing. Um, and there's a sort of a, an internal competition every year. The freshwater fish group has maybe, we have 75 candidate species, and we've only got enough money to do three or four a year. So we rank them in terms of how at risk we think they are based on input from local governments, uh, consultant companies, or individuals such as this person I mentioned, Leonard Piggin. Uh, and then uh, it's about a two-year process to collect data from biologists and uh, academics and um, in, in some cases, uh, for instance, forestry companies often provide excellent data on bird distributions and things like that. Um, and we assess the numbers of animals and the trends are they increasing are they decreasing mature individuals that is how much area they occupy is their range expanding or is it shrinking and we we take this information 
and assess them against quantitative criteria that are internationally recognized. So, for instance, um, in terms of the steelhead trout, we had data from the provincial government uh, using various ways of assessing the spawning numbers of fish from the Chilcotin and the Thompson River, uh, which showed a 80% decline in mature individuals, that is, fish on the spawning grounds, over a three-generation time period, which is about 15 years, 15 to 18 years. Oh, wow. And, and that, wow. that precipitous decline, so that's a rapid decline over a relatively short time period, that triggers, based on these international criteria, I think it's over. if it's over 70% over um, three generations, then these international set of criteria say that organism is endangered because its its decline is so rapid that it could wink out uh, at any time. So that's how, we, because we got the data from the provincial government um, and people analyzed it and came up with a rate of decline, it hit that criterion and that's why Kosiewicz recommended both of those, both in the emergency assessment, which was done very rapidly uh, over like a two-month period as opposed to a two-year period. Uh, that's why they were both assessed as... Um, endangered because they went from several thousand to under 200 <laughs> uh, since the 1980s uh-huh. since the 19 actually since the 1990s um, yeah so and, and then Kosiwik makes a recommendation once a year to the federal minister of the environment and climate change saying here's 40 species we assessed they're everything from lichens to polar bears uh, we think this species should be endangered this species should be special concern we made a recommendation it's only a recommendation to the minister of environment and climate change uh, at the time was Catherine McKenna for, in an, on an emergency basis that the Chilcotin and Thompson steelhead be listed under the Species at Risk Act Sarah as endangered, which would then make it illegal to kill, harm, harass them or to damage their habitat and a federal recovery strategy would have to be developed within a certain time period. So it has very strict mm. consequences if they're legally listed. And the upshot of that is, which we can talk about, is the government uh, decided not to list them. So they're not; they have no yeah. legal protection yeah. right now. Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, that was that was pretty controversial. And and as I recall, it took a long time after the report was was submitted to the minister for that that decision to come down. I think it was like a year, wasn't it? Uh, Yes, um, and some of that, I, yeah, I think that was about right. I've forgotten in the midst of time. Um, you know, there are certain, they, they have certain things they have to do. They have to, um, the, the, before the government, obviously they can't just say, oh yeah, let's list it, because the, the way the Species at Risk Act works is they have to look, the government, not Kosiwik, Kosiwik only deals with the biology. We look at the numbers, the habitat, and we make a decision based on biology. We, it has nothing to do with how many jobs are going to be lost or what recreational opportunities are going to be lost. That's irrelevant to the Kosiwik process. But the federal government that makes the decision whether to list them or not, they uh, clearly, and they're elected officials, I mean, we shouldn't be deciding whether these things are listed or not because we're basically unaccountable. It's the politicians that are the ones that are accountable uh, and they have to go through a process to look at what's the potential for recovering these species and what are the economic and social costs of listing them. 
and weigh that against the biological risk of extinction, and then they come to a political decision. And based on what I would say was not very good analysis of uh, some of the consequences, particularly the socioeconomic consequences, they came to the conclusion, conclusion that it would not be in the ecological, social, or economic best interests of Canadians to list them under Sarah, which I completely disagree with, but they're the ones that make the decision. Right, yeah. Yeah, so... Now, now, if they were listed, was this, you know, if this was a significant part, would that have or would that shut down the commercial fishery on the Fraser River if that one fish gets listed under Sarah? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, that's that's what... Um, okay. It, you just have to prosecute the fishery without killing any. So, in other words... You could maybe switch right. the fishery. So you could switch the fishery to um, a fish wheel type fishery or these giant weirs that they use on the Columbia River to uh, you know, sort the fish and release them with much less mortality. So it wouldn't, it would, it would, it would definitely, you could charge someone if they caught a chum salmon in a gill net or fishing chum salmon in, in November with gill nets in the lower Fraser River and someone caught them. Uh, with steelhead in the net, you could definitely charge them under the Fisheries Act. That's right. And you know, okay. I think they were so. Yeah. So a little bit of the fear mongering, kind of like the you know the whole commercial fishing industry was at stake over this one fish that was you know not very many left. Was maybe not quite. Yeah, I, truthful. I, no, I think that's I think that's ridiculous uh, assumption. Um, that's just simply not true. And people right. Okay. You know. People claim that, oh, well, it's going to impact the recreational fishery, you know, uh, northern Strait of Johnson Strait or even further north than that where the steelhead come in. I mean, people guiding out uh, on the salt chuck are not targeting steelhead. Uh, and and w- where would be the enforcement right. anyway? There, there's, there's such a lack of enforcement anyway. You can't, nobody even knows how many of these fish are caught in the gillnets because no one's, no one's monitoring the fishery. So. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, and and it would only be like if you if you killed one, but um, so if you accidentally caught one, you could let it go. At least if you were a recreational fisher, yeah, I get that, I get that. That's right. Um, so, do do we know today like like causation of that huge decline? Yeah. Um... No. Or is it part of the proverbial black black box of the, it's, of the it's ocean? Part of the proverbial black box. Um, although we do know, I mean, it was I think up till 1989, you could still harvest one steelhead a day. I mean, I, I think there was obviously probably a possession limit also of two days catch, so you, you couldn't have more than two on you. But you could kill fish up till 19 basically 1990 basically. Uh, you know, there's no question that any time you're removing fish, and I'm not sure if there was any studies done on looking at the sustainability of a one fish per day harvest up until 1990. So I'm just leaving open the possibility that some of the historical recreational angling might have, uh, you know, put them on a, on a slight downward trend. It's definitely not responsible for the massive collapse that's happened. Mm, okay. Um, but it's certainly, right. you know, o- changing ocean conditions, um, which can mean a couple of things. One is uh, just survival of steelhead. The, f- the fish are getting smaller, 
which is also impacts the productivity of the population uh, in terms because the, the bigger females, of course, have bigger, more eggs. So the, 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 the average size, I believe, is getting smaller. So there's something going on about the growth conditions in the ocean. Um, mm. Predation by pinnipeds uh, is definitely a, a, a big problem for steelhead in the Strait of Georgia, uh, Salish Sea, and, and adjacent areas. There's really good evidence that that's a problem for Chinook salmon in that area. The Salish Sea, I don't think, is a very fun place for um, a lot of salmonid fishes these days. But certainly changing ocean conditions. And I, and I also think that, I mean, these fish live in the Fraser River Basin. Uh, two-thirds of all British Columbians live in the Fraser, Fraser River Basin. they got to go out as smolts through um, the Fraser Estuary and the lower Fraser Valley. We've lost over 95% of all the historical wetlands. The adults got to come back mm. through the Fraser River estuary, surrounded by basically 3 million people. One of the main spawning population complexes of Thompson, of course, is in a very heavily developed area of the southern interior. Uh, water extraction, agriculture, uh, water quality issues, uh, new pipeline going through the cold water area. I mean... Any, I'm not singling out logging. I'm not singling out any one of these as the culprit, but just it's a game of sums. Cumulative impacts on the watershed, I'm sure. Cumulative, have, yeah, you know, cumulative have, impacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Have had impacts on spawning success. We had, uh, yeah. So it, it's it's myriad factors all acting uh, in their sort of sinister. You know, the hundred hundred horsemen of the apocalypse, basically. <laughs> Or certainly at least more than four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But certainly pinnipeds yeah. and, and yeah, no, I'm, predation I'm... is a big one. And changing ocean, mm, you know, right, okay. changing productivity okay. in the ocean. Uh, and Yeah, yeah, because fish getting smaller is, is a real classic sign of, of like less nutrition available, yep. Yep. would it not? Yep, uh, and it and, could and be... And overfishing, from what I've seen in science, fish get smaller... Um, average size gets smaller the more heavily they're fished, uh, even in recreational fisheries, because the big fish are the yep. are the prize. Yeah, I mean certainly okay. si- reductions mm. in size is a common has been a common phenomenon in Pacific salmon. Uh, you know, a, a mesh sizes and things like that. But you know, all of these f- other factors I talked about. You know, we I mean, pinniped predation, sea lions and seals. I mean, it's a, it's a natural for an experiment, an experimental cull, and you see if you can increase the survival of smolts going uh, out of the Strait of Georgia. They've got all these arrays and all this sort of stuff. They can monitor how many fish go by one area and how many go by. You can you can change the numbers of se- seals and sea lions and see if you can have an impact on on survival. I mean, that that's politically, socially, that's a difficult thing to sell. Um, but yeah. I think yeah, wolves wolves of the sea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think it's worth a try. Um, you know, changing the ocean, not playing nice, changing productivity, temperature, distribution of prey item. There's not, there's squat we can do about that for the next 50 years. I guarantee it. There's nothing we can do about that. We just got to ride with what the ocean is going to give them. But the other big threat, of course, is that kills fish every year, without doubt, is bycatch in the lower Fraser River gillnet fisheries, particularly the ones for fall chum salmon. Those kill steelhead. We know that. And that's the one thing you could stop right away. You could say, 
No more gillnet fishing for, for the, chum salmon, and you would stop killing steelhead. Now, am I am I right that the the timing of the chum and the steelhead coming into the system uh, it are timed so that yep. these fish are traveling together, and if fishers are trying to target chum, their 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 buddy right next to them could could be a steelhead. Mm-hmm. That that's correct. I mean, they do overlap. With yeah. Okay. Other runs they will overlap a little bit certainly with the this year the uh you know the sort of sushwap adams river run of of late run sockeye um but that's not a issue because there's probably going to be no uh commercial fishery at least all citizen commercial fishery in in, in the lower fraser um but even the, and the, the degree of overlap oh, isn't nearly as great as, as it is with chum yeah so chum fishery is a real problem oh, okay yeah yeah interesting yeah but, but it is important uh, so, to. But yeah, then. Sorry, I, I, I just wanted no, to finish. Ahead, ahead, I mean, ahead. it is important because people go, "Oh my God, you're gonna what do you think? You're gonna shut down all the chum f- fisheries?" <laughs> no, no, we could change the way the chum salmon are fished. As I say, you could use weirs or you could use fish wheels, and maybe that doesn't employ as many people. I don't really know the numbers behind it. Maybe it doesn't have everyone has their own little gill net, their own little lifestyle. And I, I appreciate that that's an issue, but there's lots of things about lifestyle that we don't do anymore because we've screwed up the planet so much. We can't afford it anymore. I might like smoking as a mm-hmm. part of my lifestyle, but you're not going to do it because information says you shouldn't be doing it. So I, I don't buy that argument. Right, well, this is the right. way we've always yeah. fished and this is the way we always should fish. It's ridiculous. We don't live in that time anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> huh? So when the announcement was made by the federal government that they weren't going to list the interior um, runs, steelhead runs, uh, under Sarah. Did did the provincial or the federal governments do anything after that? Did they take any of the recommendations to heart? Were there like other action plans, anything done, or was just everything ignored? No, um no, things weren't ignored, and and I'm convinced. Uh, I take, you know, I've I've done my little part, uh, not taking any personal credit for this, but I'm convinced things like the announcement yesterday. Uh, we're diverging a bit, talking about Pacific Salmon Recovery Fund. I'm convinced that um, the pressure people have put on uh, various groups, uh, BC Wildlife Federation. Um, Watershed Watch, etc. Individuals, Watch, about, yep, yeah, yep. about the, the decline of Pacific salmon and steelhead. I'm convinced that the government, because they, they haven't list, not only have they not listed steelhead, they haven't listed any of the sockeye salmon that have been assessed as endangered or threatened, including the cultus lake fish. Uh, they uh, they haven't made the decision yet, but I guarantee you they won't list under Sarah any of the chinook that have been assessed as threatened or endangered. Because of the, apparently, because of the socioeconomic costs. And there's a real flaw in some of those socioeconomic analyses they've done, in my in my view. But I'm convinced that not listing them and the pressure people are putting on them has had an impact and has made these announcements, which appear to be very positive, doubling of the recovery fund and increasing uh, the, the, the recovery fund plan by another two years by Joyce Murray. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Honorable Joyce Murray. I, I'm convinced well, the public has had an impact. Okay. Because okay. they say, oh, we're not going to listen. we got to do something. That is great to hear. 
you yeah. know, I mean, it, it's great to hear in the sense, I mean, we're talking about like, you know, endangered species and stuff, but it, it's, it's really heartening to hear when, when people are like, you need to, you need to write your elected officials about this. You need to meet yep. with them. You need to like, you know, become activists and advocates and, yep. you know, all this pressure to actually hear, you know, from someone like yourself to say, I think this is making a difference, um, you know, po- politically, uh, you know, and, and especially here on the West Coast when these decisions and, and the decision makers are, you know, uh, uh, in Ottawa, that um, to, to know that there's there's some traction because of it is is good to hear. Mm-hmm. It's it's really good to hear. So yeah, it's unfortunate and, you know, it has to happen, but yes, and you know I was very hopeful that you know we had a British Columbian and a, a Vancouverite as uh, appointed as, as Minister of Fisheries and Oceans, Joyce Murray, which is great. And and you know I've had one meeting with other people with her, and she seemed very sincere and very willing to listen to hard hard truths or at least my version of the truth anyway. Um, and, you know, I, I should be clear, it doesn't matter to me ultimately whether these fish are listed or not under Sarah. I mean, I've been advocating for it because Sarah is designed specifically to recover species at risk of extinction in Canada. That's exactly what steelhead are. The government admits that. They just say we don't want to do, we don't want to list them under Sarah because we think it's going to cost too much, which I disagree with and we're going to propose an alternative um, plan which I'll get to in a second and if that alternative plan works and there are more steelhead butts on the spawning grounds in four years eight years twelve years I'll be happy as a clam it won't matter if they're listed as steelhead the ultimate metric of this is not how much money is spent not how many local projects are funded uh, not how many people are employed, but how many fish are on the spawning grounds. That's the only metric that matters. And they've got all sorts of other metrics that they're going to measure. But to me, if all they employ all these people and spend all this money and drop all this money in these communities and there aren't more fish in the spawning grounds, it'll be a total and utter failure. So they got to keep that in mind. Uh, so to yeah, answer your question, yeah. the, the province and the federal government dev- devised a joint action plan. And you can read the report on the progress of the Joint Action Plan as of August 2021 uh, on one of the BC government. Or you just go Steelhead Action Plan, BC government, and you'll you'll find it. And there's a huge 20-page table with green, yellow, and red highlighting saying, yes, we've completed this. We're sort of halfway through there. We haven't even started on this sort of stuff. Uh, so there's a lot of people doing a lot of stuff. There's There's no question about that. And I'm sure they're sincere in their efforts. Um, you know, it's going to take decades for these fish to recover. So um, everybody should be very clear about that. Uh, and th- th- the key thing is to really monitor whether these people actually... It's a di- very difficult problem to recover something once it's at this low level, for sure. Because the whole system's now changed because there's already... 20 two, fish, yeah. 20 fish, or who knows? You know, maybe the mountain whitefish is now going to take over the Chilco River. Who knows? Um, but that's really the the metric that matters is how many fish are on the spawning grounds. And people have to keep watching and following the progress of this. And it's hard to follow the progress. You know, one of the other things it is, well, don't worry, we're, we'll manage the steel. Sorry, I'm rambling here, but you got me started. You know, one of the other no, actions. No, this is, this is awesome. <laughs> one of the other actions. I mean, th- this is the way these people think. It's 
one of the other things is, oh, don't worry, uh, we're not going to we're not going to list them under Sarah, the federal legislation specifically designed to recover species at risk of Canada. We'll manage them under the Fisheries Act. The Fisheries Act. It's not the Fish Conservation mm. Protection Act. It's the Fisheries Act. Fisheries is the commercial, agricultural, recreational exploitation of fishes. Their mandate is to promote fisheries. And we're going to somehow, in a 455-page document that your eyes glaze over after you go through the first 10 pages, they're going to explain to you how they're going to protect Fraser River Steelhead within this massive document that talks about everything in the Fraser River management plan. It's just It makes the average person, if I include myself, it's mind-bogglingly dense to try and get through. And so the, one of my issues with the Fisheries Act is that it's the, the, the minister and the biologists are not as accountable. There's no legislated timelines to say you have to recover this stock by this amount of time, by this amount. They just say, oh, we're going to rebuild stocks, whatever that means. Sarah has legislated timelines that the minister has to report on the progress of recovery of an endangered species or threatened species every five years. And he or she has to post their progress on the public website that you and I can both look at. So there's a much more transparent right. system to monitor whether these people are actually doing anything, anything, as opposed to just spending money, which is easy. Huh. Yeah, yeah. That's super interesting, yeah. Um, I, I know in, in the last episode when we were talking um, to Jen about the cod collapse, in Eastern Canada, that there's still a small commercial fishery on them. And kind of the perspective there was, it's like you have an identity of people, the culture, it's attached to it. But but it's like if you took their fishery away, it was like, it's almost like that was it for the fish. Like everybody would just forget about it. Like nobody would be caring about the fish because, you know, it was a big commercial fishery. Um, so this small fishery of, you know, an endangered um, stock was, is still important to keep that in the forefront of people caring, um, caring about it. And um, so, so it was a very unique situation there with the cod and, and, and they're not listed under Sarah. Um, I, I believe, uh, and that sort of makes sense to have the fishery. But in this case, with the interior Fraser River steelhead, it's you know what you just said about the accountability and the transparency of people showing progress towards putting more butts on the spawning ground. Yeah, um, yeah. makes total sense in this case, and they, it seems to we've we've missed the mark there for steelhead. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, and and. As I say, the you know the bycatch in the lower Fraser gillnet fisheries, chum fisheries, is the one lever you can pull right now to stop yeah. these fish from being killed. And you know, if there was a thousand fish spawning in the Thompson, you know, fifteen percent mortality in the gillnets, not such a big deal. When you're down to a hundred or fewer, every single fish counts. Um, and just to get more fish on the spawning grounds, it, it's not going to Stopping the gillnet fishery is not in my lifetime isn't going to recover these fish. It's going to take decades for that to happen. But you need, if you want the, the base to grow, if the ocean conditions change and increase in productivity, you want as many fish po 
as possible on the spawning grounds to be able to benefit from that, their offspring to be able to benefit from that. So, in, in sort of in the government speak, they say, well, they want to reduce bycatch mortality as much as possible, or they don't, uh, bycatch mortality should as, not as, increase. As much as possible. Yeah, as much <laughs> as possible to me means zero. If that's what you really mean, then reduce it to zero. Yeah. But they, the, they change the wording like, oh, well, you know, it shouldn't be allowed to increase. Well, that, that's ridiculous. You know, of course it shouldn't be allowed to increase. You, you don't want it not to increase. You want to decrease it to zero. So, but the. Yeah, it is, it is a frustrating part of those government plans and stuff like that. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you you read them and it's like nobody's really committing to doing anything or, or setting like measurable targets. Like it, it yep. just seems to be a lot of, you know, like, well, we tried, it didn't work. And well, we're, we, we thought we were able to do that, but turns out we can't actually yep. do it. And, um, just, well, yeah, just, that's very frustrating stuff. It, it is. And, and the problem is, you know, we're focusing on interior Fraser steelhead, but there's, of course, steelhead in other areas. The Gold River on the west coast of Vancouver Island used to be, I think, the best Vancouver. winter fishery, mm-hmm. steelhead fishery in BC. <clears throat> like last year, two years ago, they counted one fish. Even I caught a steelhead on, on the Gold River back in the 80s. But, you know, and, and there's problems with Pacific salmon. Uh, we see uh, various species of Pacific salmon. The Yukon River, Chinook salmon this year, the total run into the Yukon of Chinook salmon is about 45,000 fish. That that's at the lower in the lower river, and that includes Canadian and U.S. fish. The target escapement for Chinook salmon entering Canada is a minimum of I think 42,000. So, the the total number coming in to the river down at the mouth of the river isn't even enough to sustain the escapement into Canada. My my point is this is a general phenomenon for. Pacific salmon, mm-hmm. and you know, there's lots of reasons for it. But to, to get back to this idea of not listing things, the problem is one of the one of the main problems, in my view, and and this is not an original thought. It was a conclusion of the last Royal Society of Canada report on marine fisheries. Is the current model system of the Department of Fisheries and Oceans? They have a massive conflict of interest. They're in charge of conservation of federally mandated species like Pacific salmon. They, they're supposed to promote aquaculture, and they're supposed to increase opportunities for commercial harvest of fish. They can't do all, you can't do all three of those. One person cannot do all three of those things. It's impossible to square that circle. So, in my view, yeah, yeah. conservation of Pacific salmon and fish, should the conservation decision should be taken away from DFO. They should not be in charge of that. It should be solely in the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change. And those two ministries should be at war with each other, producing the best data to say, this is what we think the conservation risk assessment is, this is what we think the socioeconomic implications are, and may the best person with the strongest arguments win that. Right now you've got one group, DFO, doing all of those things and arguing amongst, I'm not even sure if they're arguing with each other within within DFO, the, the, the sort of socioeconomic group and the, and the biological assessment group, because they all serve one political master, that is the minister, ultimately. And that that's, in my view, where the real problem is, is that these fish are not getting a fair shake because there's going to be a political cost to it. And we all know uh, that 
ministers don't bear political right. costs if someone else can. Yeah, yeah. In this case, the fish. So, so, so when you said sort of the um, the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change would be like the concert, the responsibility for conservation. Are you talking provincially or federally? Sorry, federally. I mean, they, okay. they already okay. do this. They do it from everything from lichens to polar bears. But for some reason, they think, oh, well, fish are somehow different. We can't do that. We'll have to, we'll let DFO basically make the decision about whether to listen or not. Even though, <laughs> even though the minister, the, the, the Climate and Environment Change Canada is the one responsible really for administering the Species at Risk Act, they do everything from lichens to polar bears, but they can't do fish. DFO has to. Oh, wow. At the same time, oh, that they're, managing, they're trying to manage fisheries and aquaculture. You can't do it. Uh, and that's why a, we're in this mess. a legacy of this country that goes back to, to fish, salmon, and cod, yep. and industry, and the yep. dominion, and yep. divisions of powers, and all that kind of stuff. And it's just a, it's an yep. artifact that's just it, part of our country. It's, uh, it's kind of, oh, sorry, it's, it's kind of eerie to hear, because we did, I mean... This podcast comes out on the fifteenth, but the first. But we recorded the one with Jen two nights ago, and the similarities between what happened in the cod fishery and what is going on now with the Pacific salmon. Like you guys have said, so many of the same things, and they're completely opposite ends of the country. And it's just kind of like, yeah. ooh, like. History repeats itself, right? And people were saying yep. the same things back in the day with the cod fishery that are being said right now with the yep. salmon and steelhead. And it's like, it's kind of eerie, man. It, it, it is. And, you know, I think Mark's right in that it, it's a legacy. I mean, the Fisheries Act, I think, was the first one of the first pieces of environmental legislation in Canada. It's over 100 years old or something. I mean, it, it's, it's, and it's, a, it's the Fisheries Act. It's not, as I say, it's not the Fish Conservation Act. Um, but yeah, it's it's it, it it is eerie, and you know I really think that I think it was Einstein who said something like you know you, you can't fix a problem with the same people that uh, you know sort of uh, were <laughs> yeah. around when the problem developed, and and DFO does a lot of great a lot of great stuff. They do a lot of great research, um, you know, and the, the, and I'm sure they do some some good management and that sort of thing. I'm just and 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 any sort of reorganization of conservation of fishes needs to tap into that expertise for sure uh there's excellent people excellent people in enforcement excellent people in research we need that information i'm just saying that it would be better if that information was handled by another party that was not also having to talk to a deputy minister who's in charge of aquaculture and another who's in charge of fisheries or whatever yeah 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 yeah, and ultimately election cycles that are based on jobs and economy and employment rates and all that yep. kind of stuff, and we've just never ever got out of that cycle in um, this country and probably <clears throat> most most of the world. Um, could, could I? Wow, did, that's can just, I make one point about that? Yeah, just just yeah, no, go ahead. Okay, I just I just I can't it's resist. Some overwhelming stuff. It, it it's is overwhelming. Yeah, no dive. Well, in. you know. In my view, the public is sort of being hoodwinked a bit because one of the things that the steps that the federal government does, whether to decide to list a species or not under SARA, is to do a, so, a so-called regulatory impact assessment analysis or statement. So they, they look at the socioeconomic impacts. 
And okay. I, and, okay. and they're, but they're not necessarily required to do a cost-benefit analysis. But they did one for Steelhead, and I asked the person in charge of this at DFO in Vancouver if I could have a copy, and she very graciously sent me a copy. She said they don't have to do it, but they did it. And it's amazing reading. for. And, but first of all, it's not externally peer-reviewed. So I was told it was reviewed by a, a consultant who I believe was paid to review it. So it's not really independent. It was probably reviewed by other people in the DFO office to say, oh, you should use this model, not that one. But it wasn't reviewed, say, by an, an academic, a resource academic independent from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, as would be the, as, as the COSIWIC reports are. The assessment reports are externally reviewed by people outside COSIWIC. Um, and it's amazing reading because they've got pages and pages. I think I, I, I totaled it up. It was, I can't remember, but there were there were something like, I don't know, 80 lines of text describing the costs of listing. So you're going to lose 10,000 jobs. It's going to cost $25 million. I'm, I'm sort of making these figures up, although they're, they're approximately correct. Yeah, yeah. You're going to lose yeah. $25 million over five years if you shut, if you list steelhead and you have to shut some of these fisheries. So they have tons of numbers, and they're scary numbers to some people. And they're, they seem to be very absolute. So they know exactly how many jobs are going to be lost. They know exactly how much money is going to be lost. And then um, they uh, they did a cost. They, they said, what are the benefits of it? And the, the way they do this is they basically survey people, and they say, how much would you be willing to pay uh, your taxes increase, say, to make sure that steelhead responding in the Chilcot and Thompson River? And, of course, they haven't done that in Canada, but they have done it in California. And the cost that people were willing to pay was actually quite high, so much so that it was actually more under under a full recovered population. It was actually more than the costs of listing them. Um, but the document that the public sees, so it was not a bad analysis. At least it, it talked about there could be economic benefits to listing these fish and shutting these other fisheries. But the version the public saw had none of that in it. It was all just the cost, the $25 million it's going to cost the economy, it's going to cost 10,000 jobs, all this sort of stuff. The only line they had about the benefits was, uh, well, the benefits of listening would be to protect some traditional relationships between steelhead and indigenous peoples. Nothing. Nothing. Which which is a valid, Mm. definite benefit for sure. But there's a lot of other benefits for uh, listing steelhead. So... Yeah, like all the small communities, you know, like you know, Chase and yeah, Kamloops and Spence's stuff Bridge. that they had these multi-multi-million dollar uh, fisheries, you know, around yep. it. And, yeah. Yep. So, so the the information none just of wasn't, that was none was of that was considered. in the, the one that's on the publicly accessible website. I'm not sure the ministers saw that because often these very dense technical documents that, like the recovery potential assessment done by a bunch of biologists, it was I don't know. 40 or 60 pages, the ministers hasn't got time to read that. They get a very condensed version. And whenever you condense a version, there's an opportunity for changing it, which is what happened with the biological assessment. I'm not con- I'm not sure the minister actually saw the information, the text on the potential economic benefits of listing steelhead. So what worries me is that sometimes the ministers aren't getting the full story from their bureaucrats who have this conflicted mandate. That's a real problem, I think. Yeah, and that's one of the um, the things that's been in the media of of recent, specifically to do with uh, this the scientific report um, that went 
to the minister or, or the summary of the scientific report that That's went right. to the minister um, a few years ago to make the, the decision about listing was, was changed That's um, right. so that the, that the emphasis of it didn't make the steelhead situation look, look as bad or, you know, to, to list them. And, and so that would be like what you were saying is like the bureaucrats were, were the managers not properly informing them okay the, right. yeah, yeah the 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 minister so um yeah that's just it's crazy to think that in our country and in this day and age like you know things like that could be happening i don't yeah. know if it's you know, <laughs> is it real or is there just a bunch of us out there with the you know the tinfoil hat conspiracy yeah, no, thing no, I think it's, on I, is, you know i think it's real i, you know, I don't think it's a huge I wouldn't say it's a, I wouldn't call it a conspiracy, but I think, you know, it was okay. changed. It was changed unilaterally. So it, it, the, the results, the summary, as I say, every time you take a 40 page document and someone else rewrites it into a three page document, you've got the potential for lost in translation, whether it was just honest mistake, yeah, 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 yeah. which I don't think it probably was. I think, and I, I have no evidence for this, but I think people's feeling is, the emphasis of threats and the potential for recovery of steelhead um, were devalued because of what the, the perceived costs, all the problems which I just already talked about, were too great. And they sort of wanted the minister to get a sanitized version uh, you know, that, that emphasized the costs to the public, which means the, the potential political costs and not uh, the other way around. So that that you know that was basically mm-hmm. fraudulent. It was it's basically fraud. You're changing, you're you're changing a report. The implications of a, uh, the conclusions of a report without the report author's consent. Uh, whether it was intentional yeah. or not, who knows? It's hard to imagine it wasn't. But yeah, so that's a real problem. And I, I know there's been been some groups like the BC Wildlife Federation, I think the Narwhal newspaper had FOI, you know, a bunch of government records around this 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 thing, this phenomenon of that that report uh being changed and I remember reading uh, like some of the emails from Ministry of Environment's ADM, you know, at the time. Um yeah. And, and they were there, you know, the conversation between the province and the feds they were not very nice emails. Like there was, there was a yeah. lot of provincial government people that were upset about the the, the way that the the meanings of those documents mm-hmm. uh, were changed that were going to the minister. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's definitely from having seen some of those emails, there was some pretty real stuff done there. And and if it had been accidental going oh hang on that's not what we mean when we wrote that paragraph like stuff like that would have got changed right when your peers called you out going well what did you do yeah um yeah. but but it wasn't so well it makes me believe it was intentional yeah and you know you can see why that might be because you know certain bureaucrats i i feel you know i think they think it's their job to protect the minister from his or her own intuition which is a problem because they're not the ones that elected the politicians that are but um you know the, the yeah the, this issue is is, is very scary because it, it erodes the credibility of the entire process so as you say the research document was uh you know 40 people got together 
all different expertise, inside, outside DFO. Uh, it was externally peer-reviewed multiple times. Everybody came to an agreement about what the wording should be, and then some manager changed it. And the most telling denunciation of that malfeasance was a comment by a DFO official himself, who was part of the initial science document, who said, this is management meddling in science, and it degrades the credibility of our process, the recovery potential process. So you've got a DFO person themselves wow. telling you that this this process was compromised wow. by meddling by bureaucrats who are more interested in the political implications than actually doing right by the fish, which is the problem. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was another theme here, um, you know, that that I'm seeing that we talked about with Jen about in the cod fishery. And it was, uh, I quoted a, a something she had written in the book. It was actually in, in the prologue uh, of her book, Cod Collapse. And the, the basic gist was, it was like the cod collapse was like the greatest... Um, decline of a marine species in Canada's history. And no one person has ever been held to account for for what, what happened there, um, except perhaps the cod, she said, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and I see a similar situation here. Like, I mean, uh, a couple of runs, 110 fish yeah. and 20, 20 fish left in these runs. All this stuff has gone on by the people that are responsible for the public trust doctrine, yeah. which yeah. is you know part part of our the laws of this country, and and there's no process to hold those people accountable. Now, if that manager, you know, somebody had went, you know, this bank account here had yeah. five million of public's money in it, and now it's in your bank account in the Cayman Islands or whatever, like like people would go to prison for that. Yeah. But yeah. when we're talking about something like, like a fish, um, which doesn't have legal standing, uh, yeah. which is, which is an interesting thing to get your thoughts on that. Um, people are not held responsible, like, like culpable for, for doing stuff like that. Yeah. That's the real, um, yeah, it, it, it that, that's, that's a terrible thing. <laughs> um, you know, ministers change, governments change, the bureaucrats, a lot of them stay the same, you know, but a lot of times it's it's impossible to find out who's responsible for a lot of these things, and they just disappear into the mist. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to... Yeah, so yeah that, it, that's it, would, it would be, I would definitely agree, it would be hard hard for a, like a tribunal type thing to kind of sift, yeah. sift through the records yeah. and... And, uh, you know, fine, fine. But I mean, geez, you look down on the States. I mean, they're still pulling records, you know, out of Trump's, you know, yeah. residence and yes. stuff about the, you know, the, the, you know, look, looking for, for stuff there on the, on the storming of Capitol Hill. But, um, yeah. Uh, so anything else you want to add? I, I want, I want you to, I want to shift a little bit into kind of like the future of steelhead recovery. You've talked about a few things, uh, a few levers, but before before we leave where we're at, um, is there is there anything we're missing in this conversation when when I kind of now want to sort of do some forward looking? Yeah, um, I I don't think so. I mean, I you know. <laughs> 
sorry, I turned into a bit of a bit of a rant by me in some aspects, but but I I, I think that's a good indication of the frustration that myself and many people feel with this issue is, mm. you know, these fish are slipping away. It's not like the world will stop spinning if Thompson and Chilcotin River steelhead go extinct. But, you know, to, to overuse an analogy, they're kind of a canary in a coal mine. If it's not, if it's them, then what's going to be next? Um, we've got a general problem with Pacific salmon. We, we just feel that nobody's really in charge. No one's accountable. And why not use the federal legislation that's specifically designed to recover species at risk, the Species at Risk Act, for fish and move on to a new model? The old model is not working. Um, and so we got to yeah. try something new. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, that's okay. a good segue into the future. Um, Maybe. Yeah, a- absolutely. So, so we want the Chilcotin and Thompson steelhead to, to recover. Um, you know, the numbers are almost, you, you know, like, you know, we've, we've heard things and, you know, with, especially with mammals, um, this concept of like functionally extinct, there, there's still individuals there, but like the genetics, the diversity of the original gene pool and stuff there, you know, there is no way to recover them. Um, I don't know if these two steelhead runs are are quite there. I mean, there's a difference in fish because, you know, like one female produces hundreds of thousands of eggs. I don't know how genetically diverse all that is from from uh, her lineage. But let's, let's walk through some of your thoughts on bringing this species back from the brink. Right. right. Well, uh, Sorry to be an academic weenie, stop, but a fish stop, biology stop weenie. Stop killing them. Yeah, that, well, that, well, that, <laughs> you know, it's... Step uh, one. Well, Thompson River steelhead are known for a high, very high fecundity, not not as high as 100,000 like you mentioned, but, you know, certainly ten or 12,000 okay. on average. So that's one of the sort of unique features of them. Um, so that's a lot of little fish bombs uh, to go off in a nice way if they're allowed to spawn. Um, but, you know, what we need to do is to, yeah make sure the maximum number of fish are on the spawning grounds every year. There's a limit. There's nothing we can do really about the ocean conditions right now. The ocean, as one of my colleagues says, is just not playing nice right now for steelhead for unknown reasons. <laughs> um, but it, it, it will, it will change. I mean, look at, uh, look at the, you know, double the expected run size of, of sockeye salmon in the Skeena river, huge numbers in Barkley sound. Sometimes things turn around and we need to be in a position to be able to exploit that change in ocean productivity that's going to come at some point. Um, I mean, okay. I think it was Al Unser who said, you know, the definition of success is having opportunity and preparedness intersect at the same time. We need to prepare these steelhead gotcha. for uh, a change in ocean productivity that hopefully is going to come. And that means maximizing the number of fish on the spawning grounds. We need to change the way, no one's saying shut the fisheries in the lower Fraser. We need to prosecute those fisheries in a way that eliminates bycatch of steelhead uh, as a byproduct, as a, as a consequence of those fisheries. And um, and the restoration fund that the, the, the feds have announced, hopefully there'll be some good projects that will in, improve uh, spawning and rearing habitat. 
um, in the in the spawning streams, obviously. I mean, I'm not sure what you can do about the Fraser River estuary. Um, I don't see how wetlands are going to come back. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of migrations into wetland. I think some of the wetlands are lost because the fish can't access access them anymore because of barriers, and maybe some of the funding can go to to removing those barriers to increase usable area in the lower Fraser River estuary. Uh, at the same time, you know, we want to increase uh, the Delta port footprint to export more coal for some crazy reason, and that ain't going to do any good for the Fraser River <laughs> yeah, estuary. Yeah. So there, there's certain environmental problems, you know, fi- fixing a fishway or repairing uh, riparian habitat in a small interior rearing stream is a lot easier than trying to figure out what to do with the lower, lower Fraser River estuary. But hopefully this restoration fund will will get the freshwater habitat as good as it can be. That's only going to do a certain amount, as I say, because a small percentage change of survival in the ocean can just have a huge impact on numbers, much more than in freshwater habitat. The freshwater habitat's not bad, actually. It's it's not. I don't think it's the limiting factor. Okay. It can be improved, okay. but it's not the limiting factor. I don't okay. think. And I think most people think it's not the limiting. Oh, factor. that's that's good to know. Okay. Uh, but huh. th- we shouldn't be sanguine about it. We shouldn't um, say, oh, to hell with it. Let's just start uh, building a quarry here, that, that, and the other thing. But we, we need to arrest the degradation of freshwater habitat and improve it to prepare these fish for success and hope that the ocean changes. Okay. Is there anything else we can do about the ocean? Uh, you know, you had, <laughs> um, you had mentioned it earlier in the show um, about the impacts of pinnipeds, Mm. seals. Um, So do you think there is a piece there um, for attaching some research and monitoring uh, and it'll probably benefit like like across a number of of Mm -hmm. fish species is is culls. Yeah. And and there seems to be a lot of calls for it first nations communities talking about yep. it. yep i think you know um why not uh, <laughs> there's good evidence that this is a, a limiting feature on marine survive early marine survival of uh, british columbia pacific salmon and steelhead there's okay. enough good evidence and, and that one to should me that's a, a that's a key yeah that's and, the and, key is you're saying there is evidence rather than just sort of the um, you know the torch and pitchfork thing. Yep. Well, it's got to yep. be the seals. It's yeah, not. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. the fishing boat. So no, let's go sure. after the seals and, you know, this sort of thing. So, so and, yeah. If we've got some good science around it, then, yep. you know, and, it and, seems and like a good a good management. The key thing is, you could use a cull to do more good science. So maybe the good science that I'm talking about now is maybe not perfect, and you do an experimental cull, and the maybe it uh, revitalizes traditional. Uh, indigenous uh, fisheries, if I can call them that, for, for seals and sea lions. And, and the, yep. the killed yep. ones are put to good use culturally and nutritionally and all that sort of stuff. And you design it properly so that you can test a hypothesis about whether or not these things are having an impact on uh, salmon and steelhead survival. And it's possible you come to the conclusion, actually, killing them had no impact. Or you'd have to reduce them by 90%, which might be unacceptable but th- this this knee-jerk reaction yep, that yep. we can't kill them because they're pinnipeds is ridiculous because we're we're killing them sometimes with boats we're killing them sometimes 
we're, we're disturbing all sorts of marine animals with with uh, marine noise pollution and things like that. We would do it in a structured way to try and help another species. And I, I don't think there's, I have no problem morally with that whatsoever. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, and personally, I, I don't either. Um, you know, because there, there, there's the opportunity to utilize the entire, you know, seal itself. When people yeah. think of like culls, they just sort of think of like, you know, laying waste to things and they, and they lay on the land and, yeah. and you know, and to learn or something. whatever. To learn so, something from it. Yeah, and and attach some science to those things. And a, a few episodes ago, Curtis and I had on um, Rami Vajwa. She's the executive director of the Canadian Seal Products Association, and we're a lot of what we were talking about was was Atlantic seal populations. Um, but like, there's a hunt on them, and there is. Um, a market and the meat go to restaurants and there's you know um seal oil and seal products and indigenous people have quotas from dfo because they're they're regulated by dfo mm-hmm. interestingly enough they're con- considered as a fish mm-hmm. <laughs> for regulatory purposes in canada not not a mammal and um hunters in you know the north can get tags and stuff for them mm-hmm. but indigenous people on the west coast don't have a traditional hunt on them and i and i know there there are indigenous hunters that are advocating for that um to return of the seal hunt and tying that to to the conservation thing so we're doing it they're they're not harvesting the numbers that they could harvest in atlantic canada but we're not even doing anything with it on the pacific coast to see whether or not it, it could help so um it's not like the country can't enter into a you know a seal harvest. So. Yeah, no, it's you know I uh-huh. okay no I, so there's uh, yeah I, I mean I have faith that if you explain the situation to people there's going to be people who are going to just knee jerk reactions say thou shalt not kill anything thou shalt not cut down a plant, um, but you know we've got to try something, and why not do it in an informed structured way where we learn from it, engage lots of people have clear um, expectations, not not clear expectations, but clear objectives and see where yep. it goes. And if not, well, yep. then that's one less thing we can do for the steelhead. And, and people who advocate against a seal cull have to live with that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a similar sort of story narrative with the endangered caribou and the wolf control programs in in the province right like um there's good science um there's evidence showing that it's helping with uh caribou population recovery uh but then on the other hand there's people are going well the science is wrong and you know it's a it's habitat it's not predation and so i would expect some of that to overlap into a seal management program um in british columbia for sure maybe they wouldn't quite garner the public attention because they aren't wolves there's too much like a fish i i don't know whether people would um yeah big eyes in their furry maybe you're right maybe yep. they would but um okay that that's that's interesting so yeah i'm i i hope we we move towards that in a structured way of you know if nothing else you know partnering indigenous harvesters yeah. and a market for this with science yeah 
Yeah, for sure. You know, so, and, so do and, I. Yep. And, yep. At least okay. at least on an experimental basis. You know, may, maybe not forever. Yeah, absolutely. But let's try yep. it for twenty years and see what happens. And see what happens. No, absolutely, absolutely. Now, now the one I also wanted to ask you about is um, is hatcheries. So there is this history, sometimes it's successful in North America, um, the California condor, uh, the peregrine falcon, the, the whooping crane. Um, the last pairs were taken from the wild, uh, reared in captivity, and were used to reintroduce viable populations. Those are some success stories. I don't know how many people in Canada know, but... Um, the peregrine falcon and I'm pretty sure it's the whooping crane were brought back from extinction because of of rearing programs. And yeah, they very I mean, brave, very very brave people that just kind of went against yeah. national political policy and stuff and just did it. Yeah. Um, so what what about for steelhead? Could well. That work? Uh, <laughs> Sorry, this is going to sound like a smart aleck comment, but as far as I know, none of those things you talked about are fish. So yes. it, it, it's it's a little different, and and you know I think the <laughs> no peregr- for sure yeah. birds birds yeah. yeah the peregrine falcon you know captive rearing played a role. It, 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 I'm not sure it was the dominant role, but it certainly played a role. Um, so yeah, I mean the DDT thing was huge yeah, for for, yeah, the, exactly, for the exactly the raptors, and the adaptability yeah. of. You know the famous story of the peregrine, the eastern peregrine falcon nesting on the Ambassador Bridge. I mean, they're quite adaptable to to some human habitats. But anyway, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of a hatchery program that's been successful at reestablishing by itself a wild, sustainable salmon population. And and maybe some of our viewers can. I I can't think of one. Um. I think, you know, there was, wasn't there one in Eastern Canada to do with a whitefish oh, species? Yes, yes, uh, yes. And the Dalhousie Acadia. University. Yep. Um, yeah, the Atlantic, yeah. The, the Atlantic whitefish. I think whitefish. that was a captive. Yep. Yes. Um, you know, I think, as far as I know, I, I can't remember, I should know this, being a fish biologist and having some familiarity with that species. I'm not sure those fish were sea run. They may have been, but I don't think they were. I think a hatchery program in a in a okay, lake maybe maybe not. Particularly in a lake, even if they are sea run, I think is a different prospect than a hatchery program in free flowing multiple rivers in a huge system like the Thompson. Particularly, you know, you're you got a hundred fish. So to big a hatchery program, you probably want to take at least fifty into the hatchery. So you're going to take half the spawning population in the wild into a hatchery with all the demonstrated voluminous literature of deleterious effects of hatchery fish, including steelhead, some very good work in Oregon and Washington, on the negative impacts of hatchery supplementation on steelhead. Uh, and you're going to, that that's going to be, you know, if there was 5,000 fish spawning yeah. there and you wanted to double it, then maybe I could see a closely monitored short-term hatchery program, but I think it's kind of too late for that. I would really hate to see them okay. take okay. half those fish and stick them in a hatchery somewhere. Mm. I mean, I think they did that. Right. With the, okay. Okay. I think they did that with the, when the big bar rock slide happened, there's some shockingly low number of early Stuart fish 
on the spawning grounds, and I think they took most of them into a hatchery, and I think a lot of them died from bacterial disease. I mean, we'll see how that... They, those fish should be returning next year, I think. We'll see if that did any good. But but I... Uh, you know, it, sure. Yeah. Write me a... Not that I'm going to be the one deciding this. Undoubtedly, I won't be. But write me a proposal, <laughs> a proposal. on what kind of hatchery <laughs> program you want, and let's take a look at it. You should take a look at it, but but I don't think it's it's certainly not a magic bullet. Steelhead hatcheries have right. not done okay. any good, as far as I can tell, for wild steelhead in British Columbia anywhere. They've certainly enhanced fisheries, Chilliwack River, Solmas River. I'm not so sure they've done so well on the wild spawning component of those populations. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Makes. Uh, yeah. It's it's interesting to know. Um, you know, there there is there's again it's 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 a bird, um, but it, this one always sticks with my mind. Is the wild turkey in the United States was almost you know, driven to extinction. And then, you know, the recovery effort that was put in place, they started out with captive penning projects. And so they were taking eggs and hatching them in captivity, rearing um, broods and then trying to release those. And they were dying as fast as they could let them go. (laughs) And one of the things that they had discovered is that in order for a bird to be successful in a pen, uh, it had to be a mild-mannered bird, not the ones with the wild genetics. Oh, yeah. So that's how we domesticated is the ones that were just wild and crazy that would thrash in the cages and everything. They would kill themselves or they would have to be culled so they didn't. And what they were doing is they were narrowing the genes down to these very placid animals that would adapt. Yeah. Um, in in captivity, and so so they were breeding the wild out of them, and then yeah. trying to put these birds, and it was failing. And and I've never forgot that lesson. Whenever I hear, um, whether it's maternal penning for caribou with like the steelhead, like whatever, and it, I always worry about that as a consequence of of yeah. going. Yeah. They're doing these fish have been in, you know, steelhead have been in a pen for two years. They're doing great, but is it because they're the ones that lack the you know, the genetics to, to survive in the wild. and Yeah, in mm. fact, that's often an argument you hear from fish farmers. Say, oh, well, don't worry about our fish escaping. You know, they're domesticated. They won't survive for a minute in the wild. So, I mean, a hatchery program yeah. is not domestication. You, you can design a hatchery program to minimize domestication effects. But, right. um, okay, you know, okay, still, interesting. It's, huh. it's the same thing. Huh. So, so really, you know, the, the, the bottom line for steelhead to recover and to see them thrive in the future is, is to stop kill, killing them as bycatch, um, some habitat restoration in the estuary areas, protecting the spawning habitat, you know, in the headwaters. And like you said, kind of having, being prepared for the ocean to do its thing to all of a sudden life is good for steelhead in the ocean and, and yep. to make sure those fish can get to where they need to go in the numbers that they would potentially be in. So Yeah, yeah. I, and maybe augmenting that with some predator reduction. <laughs> yep, yeah, because that's part of the ocean conditions. Huh. And, and, you know, it, it, I hate to say this, um, you know, but we kind of should have been doing this 
15 or 20 years ago. You you, you got to wonder, like well, 100 yeah, fish, 19 fish. Because I've seen those graphs of the two runs, you know, and population up and down, and then it would go down and it would get to sort of like a, well, a, a, a threshold conservation concern. And then they would go up again, and then a couple more decades would go by, and then they would go down into like, there, isn't there like the conservation concern, um, the critical concern, like, and and it's just they kept going down into like the most dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, extreme conservation concern thresholds, yeah. and then we just sat there. Well, maybe they'll come back up next year, and and. Those graphs were decades and decades yeah. of watching and them be in those those critical zones. That's right. And you know, in fairness, I think the provincial government has been making this argument to DFO for a long, a large number of years. We okay. got to do something. We got to do something. Gotcha. Uh, but they weren't. They're not being listened to. Um, don't worry. We'll handle it in the fisheries manage, uh, integrated management plan. The steel. I mean, BC doesn't have a dedicated steelhead biologist. <laughs> um, wow. You know, the, the regions that have steelhead wow. have, have biologists who know stuff about steelhead. They work on steelhead, but they also work on all the other things they have to work on. Uh, there's no one person in the province, this sentinel fish, there's not one person in the province whose job it is to coordinate British Columbia's response to uh, steelhead, the future of steelhead. And yes, there's probably someone now because they got boxed into a corner with the numbers so low. But I'm talking about, yeah, you know, serial cuts uh, to the the ministry folks who work on fish issues. Um, there, there's no provincial steelhead biologist. Wow! Wow! Well, there's there's something that folks can if they're in British Columbia or wherever in Canada, this is a Canadian thing. Is yeah, yeah. Get on, on to your elected officials about that, right? Yeah. That's you know yep. that's a, a little part that folks can do. So, so is that is that still you you were mentioning and you really kind of gave me hope about how much the public is starting to you know drive a lot of things in fisheries management and responses. Would I'm sure you're gonna say like people should just keep at it like it it may seem like an email or a letter or a phone call to an elected officials nobody listens but would you would you say to our listeners keep at it keep voicing your concerns and i i definitely would i mean i have no evidence of this but i really do think the pressure of the issues of the pacific salmon and steelhead over the last five years have had an impact they 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 realize they got to do something. Okay. Just saying we're not going to okay. list them, uh, you know, isn't going to cut it anymore. They, people are going, okay, well, you're not going to list them. We, we we accept that, even though people like me keep banging our heads against the wall saying list them. I don't have any hope they will. Then give us an alternative that's going to work. We don't care what you do. Just yeah. make just increase yeah. the numbers. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's in in. Yeah, that's that's the bottom line is yep. is show us the money like that, you know, butts on spawning grounds are, are are improving as opposed to just injections of money and ribbon cutting things and all this sort of stuff. But I mean, demand it, to see that see results. Yeah, it, it, here's an example in kind of the opposite way. 
that maybe a lot of your viewers will, will cotton on to, but um, I mean, the, the look at look at the grizzly bear hunt in British Columbia, which is now banned. Uh, I was yeah. on Kosiwik when we discussed the grizzly bear. There was an Alberta population, a BC population, and the BC population was assessed as special concern. Um, and if you read that report, I'm pretty sure I'm recalling this correctly. Hunting in British Columbia was, I mean, obviously hunting kills bears, <laughs> but it wasn't considered mm-hmm, a threat, mm-hmm. a, a major threat to these things slipping into threatened category, which is basically what special concern is. We got to pay attention, or these things may become threatened. My understanding was, was mostly habitat yeah, yeah. change. So, in many ways, there was no scientific and, and human development and human development. Yep. There was no scientific basis, really, for banning the grizzly bear hunt, yet it was banned because of public pressure. And, yep. you know, I'm, Team, so it's a really policy. good example of how it became, I think the minister at the time said, it's morally, it's become morally unacceptable to kill a grizzly bear. We need to keep the pressure on yep. so it becomes morally unacceptable for our salmon and steelhead populations to go down the tubes like they're like they're going in many areas. Oh, that's where we need to yeah, be. What a great, that's a, that's a great, great way yeah. to put it. I think that's going to, that's going to drive, drive home that yeah, message. And I think it is. Uh, I, big I, impact on people. I, I think it is. I mean, the other thing uh, I try to, you know, because a lot, I don't know, there's more DFO employees in Ottawa than the rest of Canada or something crazy like that. But you imagine if the sugar maple tree, <laughs> the sugar maple tree was going to go extinct in Eastern Canada. Uh, you know, people would be, <laughs> yeah. because of, I don't know, some pollutant in the air which was probably possible at some point in the past. Um, I mean, people would be up in arms. It's such a, it's such a central, it's an iconic product and tree of Eastern Canada. These fish are the soul of British Columbia and Yukon. And they have yeah. to understand that you wreck that and that you're, you're really hurting us right, right in the gut. They have to take it seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, huh? Yeah, keep up the pressure, folks. Yep. That's. Uh, that I think it's having a impact. real strong, strong message here. Or winning, having an impact. Okay. I mean, that's. Uh, I'm, I'm just. I'm. Th- I'm thrilled to hear that because, you know, we try to play our role like through the podcast and educate people about these topics and are always saying like pushing people back to like, you know educate your yep. elected officials because they don't all know right no um give them some information su- you know support the science tell them you care yep. you know all these sorts of things and keep keep the the topic in the forefront of yep. elected officials minds and because it, 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 and that the, was one of the things that sorry the, the political yeah, cost say, this is one of the things that jen said in sorry. in her book is she feared that that the new generations would forget about the cod and that would really be the end of them is, yeah. is people just don't, don't care. And, and so yeah. keep caring about salmon and steelhead and keep the pressure up. So, sorry, go yeah. ahead. No, I, I was just going to say that it's the political cost has to become unbearable for them to do something. And the political cost yeah. will be increased with the, with the electorate telling them it's unacceptable on your watch for these fish to go extinct. Yeah, and and I think that's having an impact. And that was one of the successes of the, one of the successes of the grizzly bear campaign is they, mm-hmm. they brought it into the political realm right mm-hmm. near an election time, 
and they garnered international pressure on even the Liberal government before they went out, right? Uh, and and so they they did exactly that. The folks that were working to get the hunt stopped was they kind of made it unacceptable, <laughs> you know, for for this to happen for whoever formed the new government and, and they were successful. So that's that's another good good analogy there is is uh is yeah, just make life rough for people yeah, that are in elected positions if if you know, this yeah, happens while they're that, there. That's right, because I think, you know, in today's world, it becomes so easy to become overwhelmed by all the problems. People go, I can't do anything. And, you know, I'm I'm quite negative about many aspects of the way fisheries are managed, but I'm, I'm just trying to get people agitated because so that they will keep the pressure up because if the public doesn't care, the politicians won't because they've got somebody else screaming in the ear about gotcha. something else and they'll go to that. Yeah, yeah. Nope. Oh man, Eric, this was a huge <laughs> learning <laughs> uh, session for us, and uh, fun to talk and about it. super passionate. I love that. I love that. It's just, uh, yeah, and and I hope I hope listeners are getting that vibe and they're getting fired up, and you know, gets gets uh, you know some more action and a few more people contact their elected officials and. Yeah. Um, there's hope there. There's hope for the steelhead. The numbers are low, but I think Eric laid out a number of of things throughout this entire show that those are places. If you if you want to advocate or put pressure on your elected officials on the on the lower mainland or federally, um, talk to them about the science around pinniped management and and uh, and pilot projects and um, you know on estuary restoration or or whatever. Like pick a small piece and. Mm-hmm and help drive that, you know, through to elected officials, your MPs. So there's a lot of good things there, Um, different fishing methods. I know the BC Wildlife Federation hosted a a workshop a couple years ago um, about alternative fishing methods, and they they talked about, you know, like all these things, like the the wheels and stuff that you were talking about, right? Selective fisheries, they can literally... Almost like live, live catching the fish yep. and then sorting them live in in the water and just taking the the the, the ones and no bycatch. So yep. um, that you can probably go back onto the BC Wildlife Federation's website because all of those seminars were recorded and available to watch again. And um, so the alternate fishing method one would would be a good one to yep. educate yourself a bit more on what, yeah. some of the yeah. things Eric it, it, was talking about. So. Yeah, it's not just about shutting stuff down. It's about, about trying something new, new creative solutions to get yeah. us in more positive area. You know, it's, it's easy to get down on stuff, no, but, but there, there are that, positive ways through this. That's that's a good message, too. Um, innovation, yep. you know. Yep. Keep keep commercial fishers working and feeding mm-hmm. people, but eliminate bycatch. Mm-hmm. It's possible. They're sending people back to the moon. So it's that's, that's possible. Right. That's right. <laughs> that's right for sure. Uh, uh, rocket science easy, conservation is hard. <laughs> that's that, no no question about that. Uh, no question about that. <laughs> Eric, thanks so much for your time. Um, all your valuable knowledge and years and in depth, you know, in knowledge of the of the Kosiwik assessment and and everything. Really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for. Uh, inviting me and uh, highlighting this very important issue uh, because um, there's Absolutely. lots of conservation issues, we'll but keep, this is we'll, a biggie. 
no, um, it's it's the time's ticking for steelhead, so um, they're a priority, right on. certainly in our mind and mm-hmm. hopefully in more Canadians' minds after this show. Hopefully. Curtis, take it away. Cool. So, actually, I have uh, one quick question for you, Eric, sure. before I do our final sponsor role here. So, obviously, me being a fishing guide for a long time of my young adult life, um, I've been in the industry and met people from all over the place and have friends from all over the place. And I think the biggest argument that I ever get into with people, specifically East coast people is are the great lake steelhead real steelhead? (laughs) Quick answer. No. They can't Perfect. be. They don't. They're mag, you know they're magnificent fish in their own right. Although they they seem to fish them when they're spawning there, which seems a bit crazy to me. You get these videos of people fishing these fish off the spawning beds is kind of crazy. No, they don't go to the ocean. They're not steelhead. End of story. Perfect. <laughs> Simple migra- answer. That's all, migrator- that's all the ammunition I need. Yeah, they're migratory rainbow trout. Well, whatever. There we go. There's no different than the migrator. Curtis has won a bunch of bets. No, see, with me, you get long-winded, hopefully reasonable quality answers. They're no different than rainbow trout going from Kootenai Lake or, or the Lardo River down into Kootenai Lake, growing to thirty pounds and going to spec, spawn at Lardo. Yeah, which are magnificent yeah. animals. They're magnificent animals. I'm not diminishing them relative to steelhead at all. But but the Great Lakes, nah. Absolutely. Get the native lake. Get the native. Perfect. Get the native lake trout and the whitefish back in the Great Lakes. Now get those pesky Pacific salmon out of there. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I'm I'm blathering on here. <laughs> totally. Oh, that's all good. That uh, that that answer just probably won me thousands of dollars in future bets with. Oh, great! Simple, fantastic. So I appreciate. Oh, that. good. No problem. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you corroborated because you're the authority, not me, really. <laughs> cool. Right on. Well, the Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, British Columbia. Make sure you write them an email. Tell them that you want to see the Pacific steelhead, the real steelhead, not the, not the Atlantic <laughs> East Coast steelhead, the real Pacific West Coast steelhead wrap on a new truck. I know I would buy one of those for sure. I got the ste- I got the steelhead bug hard, so I would buy a uh, a steelhead wrap truck. But as nice. always, yeah, big shout out to Alpine for supporting us and continuing to support us and conservation and bringing you folks fantastic dialogue like the conversation we just had with Dr. Rick Taylor. Um, also, go check out the Hunters Underground podcast on our Patreon. I think we have. Uh, one of the, since this is the 15th, we will be back from elk camp now. So we'll probably have an elk camp debrief on the Hunters Underground podcast. So make sure you check that out, folks. You can find that on our website. And it's also, uh, what's the patron? We can throw that in the show notes. I can't remember it offhand. Pa- but. Patron.com slash the Hunter Conservationist podcast. Perfect. Right on. So give that a check out, folks. Awesome. Thank you. Cool. Eric, thanks again, and um, Thank you. enjoy the rest of the summer and the fall, and hope you get some more fishing in before oh, yep. work has to set in. Now, absolutely. Send us some pictures of those uh, interior rainbows and stuff that you I, catch I, there, I will. So. Good luck at the elk camp. 
Yeah. Right on. Thanks. Thank you. Cool. All right, everybody. We will see you in the next episode.